A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Akshay Nanavati, author of Fearvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. In this book, Akshay defines Fearvana as the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. Akshay is somebody I met when I started my coaching journey back in 2012 in a Jack Canfield Train the Trainer program, and I lost touch with him for many years until recently I was scrolling through my newsfeed and I saw this interesting new book for which the Dalai Lama wrote the foreword written by Akshay Nanavati. And I thought, wait a minute, I met him years ago. That's pretty cool. So in this interview, he shares his experiences, what he's done with his life, some of which I learned and was impressed by in that program, which include joining the Marine Corps where he spent time sweeping in front of vehicle convoys to find explosives. He talks about the time he went to join the military and doctors told him that it would kill him due to a blood disorder that he was born with, but he went ahead and did it anyway and has overcome no shortage of difficulties. In fact, has sought them out his whole life, it seems. He's skydived, mountain bike, scuba dive, rock climbed, ice climbed, anything he says that forced him to face his fears. In the foreword to his book, the Dalai Lama writes, and I love this, I get to quote the Dalai Lama. He says, his book, Fearvana, inspires us to look beyond our own agonizing experiences, suggesting means for overcoming our fears. I appreciate his sincerity and hope that others will find reason and the encouragement to see the positive side of their lives. Akshay has lived in Bombay, Bangalore, Singapore, Austin, and Eden Prairie, Minnesota, because hey, why not? This interview is one that I think you'll find pretty interesting. He shares some very unique challenges that he's taken on, some I've never even thought of before, but I believe that you'll find something in this interview to be inspired by. You'll find some practical things that you can apply to improve the quality of your life. And if nothing else, you can think, hey, at least I didn't go through that. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Akshay Nanavati. And thanks so much for listening. And by the way, if you want to learn more about Akshay or his work, you can check out fearvana.com. Akshay, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me here, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's so great to reconnect. Akshay, let's start with the question I pretty much always start with. What's life about? Wow, great question to start with. What's life about? I think life is about self-transcendence in service of something greater than us. What does that mean? 
I think it's about transcending ourselves in service of, I mean, we live in a human community, right? We exist as one, as a part of not just ourselves, as part of Earth, as a part of this global family. And I think it's about transcending ourselves. Like we get caught up in our own stuff, right? And we all do. God knows I do. God knows I've gone through my lows. Uh, and I know you have. We all do. It's human, right? But I think when you transcend yourself, it's not just in service of others, but it's actually in service of yourself too. So you can transcend your own pain to move towards your own mission, to move towards your own greatness. So I think the essence of life is really self-transcendence. And uh, self-transcendence is everything. (laughs) And in fact, I'm constantly asking myself, how can you be transcending right now? That's why I do everything I do. Yeah. I, I happen to agree with you. And I, I'm reminded of Maslow's original hierarchy when he wrote it, I believe back in 1943, when that was published and popularized, that it had five tiers. But what, I, what many people don't know is that before he passed, he actually added three more levels. And, self, and you probably know this, that self-actualization wasn't actually the pinnacle anymore, but transcendence was. So what you're saying is right on point with some very respected thinkers and resonates with, with my experience as well. And Viktor Frankl, actually, to add to that, Viktor Frankl puts it beautifully, man's search for meaning. He says that self, uh, self-actualization is a side effect of self-transcendence. Uh, and, I, and I think that was beautiful, too. And a lot of my life experiences taught me about self-transcendence. So it's yeah. become kind of a staple. <laughs> well, and you and I, I think, have been on somewhat parallel journeys for probably our whole lives. Um, and we had the chance to first connect, I think it was 20, it was either 2012 or 2013, back when we did Jack Canfield's Train the Trainer program. And um, I hadn't really stayed in touch with you, but I remember, I think it was the last session, you and I were paired together to do a presentation. I was still a meat eater back then. I remember we met at a famous Dave's barbecue and worked on our, our program. And, and I felt like we did a great job and, and you really carried us. Oh, no, man. <laughs> uh, my memory is not as good as yours, but, uh, but I'm sure it was collective. It's all collective. So <laughs> No, I, I could tell, you know, when you meet people, you, you get a sense of, you know, do they know who they are? Do they know where they're going? Um, do they, is their story one that they tell in a way that empowers them or are they a victim of it? And I remember just in those, you know, practice sessions, where we were learning these skills as coaches and facilitators and trainers that even then you had that congruence that I found very impressive. Oh, thank you. No, I appreciate you saying that. It's been a hell of a journey to get here and continue, obviously continually evolving, right? So yeah. it's been a good journey. Yeah. And, and I see that we've got a few friends just looking on your Facebook profile and having listened to a few of your other interviews. Um, and of course, who's blurbed your book. It's pretty cool for me to see. Uh, looks like we're both connected with Marshall Goldsmith. Yes. How, tell me how you and Marshall linked up. So, how did, yeah, we linked up actually. So through my dad was, in a, was doing some work with this professor, Jagdish Shep, uh, from uh, I think it was Emory in Atlanta. Uh, and so I met this professor, Jagdish Shep, and he was, I'm not trying to say this to brag, but he was very impressed with me and my work. And he is good friends with Marshall Goldsmith. So he kind of recommended me to Dr. Goldsmith. And uh, so then I shared my book, Fairvana, with Marshall Goldsmith, and he loved it and endorsed it. So it was a real blessing to get endorsement from him because I love his work. I loved Triggers, uh, you know, fantastic book. And obviously, he's amazing. So it was really cool to get an endorsement from him as well. No, absolutely. Marshall is somebody that I really admire and aspire to emulate in many ways. Um, Master at his art. One thing that, speaking of people who've blurbed your book, which is this book, Fairvana. 
that we'll talk about. Um, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. I did also want to share this with you because I thought it was kind of a fun point of interest, but I've been interviewing for a new operations person to help me with the school for good living. My guy recently got recruited by Amazon and he's moving on. And, and so as I was interviewing people, um, in a, you know, one of my favorite questions is what are you reading? And one of the gentlemen that I interviewed, I, he had it on a list in his phone. And I said, do you mind if I look at, at your list? And he had recently finished reading Fear of Anna. And I was like, that is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that, that Always really cool. cool to hear that. Yeah. When, especially when it makes an impact, it's a beautiful thing. That's what matters. Will you just share with me how, how did you get the Dalai Lama involved with, you know, commenting on your work and involved with your work? I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Getting the Dalai Lama forward was a tremendous blessing, as you might imagine, a tremendous blessing. It was, I mean, so it actually started with um, first, actually, the belief that it was possible. Because remember when I wrote the book, I thought Firavana is a very spiritual concept. It'd be amazing to get the Dalai Lama to endorse it. And I immediately kind of shut that off. Like, who am I? I can't get the Dalai Lama to endorse my book, right? And then I got my first endorsement from Seth Godin, which was a pretty cool endorsement to get the first one from. And that kind of like triggered some confidence. So I was like, okay, you know, why not try? So what I did was I reached out to an email in his, uh, like to the email on his office website. And that kind of got me nowhere. So I did just a bunch of digging, a bunch of research, found a name and email on Google. And I shot a personal video for him sharing my whole story, all the struggles I've been through that have led to Fearvana, the mission we have for Fearvana, everything we want to do with it. And uh, connected with this one monk in the monastery, connected me to three other people and sort of five months of building a relationship with this monk, going back and forth. And the whole time, and I really want to state this point, I was navigating a lot of self-doubt when they didn't hear, when I wouldn't hear back after a few weeks, I'd think, oh, they hate my book. There's no way. It's not going to happen. But the thing is, you don't have to listen to that, right? And that's what I also mean about self-transcendence, that you can be with the doubt, be with the fear, but you don't have to let that define you. So I'd say, okay, it's not real. Let me rise above it and follow up, check in. And after building a relationship with him, I remember after about five months, he said, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And a few weeks later, I got this beautiful letter in the mail with His Holiness's seal and signature. We have it framed now. And he ended up writing a forward. I only asked for sort of a one-line endorsement, but he wrote the forward for my book, which was wow. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fantastic. That, that never hurts. <laughs> it certainly does. And I mean, it was obviously just a blessing for me, but in terms of the marketing of the book, game changer, right? No, that, that's awesome. And, and the whole concept, you know, when I first saw this book, uh, online, I think I came across it. Somebody shared something on Facebook, and then I saw some of the things you'd written on your blog about Fearvana. At first, I was like, "Okay, you know, people make up words all the time. Marketers make up word words." At some point, I acknowledge every word is a made up word, you know. But it didn't really. I was like, "What? What is this? Okay, what's Akshay up to? What does he? What does he mean by that? Why should I care?" Which is for anybody you know who hasn't yet read the book or even heard about it. Will you tell? Tell me, what, what does Fearvana mean to you? Mm -hmm. So I'll kind of define the one-liner meaning and then the ethos of it as well. So in one line, what I define Fearvana is the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. So I call your worthy struggle your path, you know, whatever it is you want to pursue, playing chess, writing movies, running ultra marathons, whatever it is, that's your worthy struggle. But the idea, the ethos of Fearvana is it's fear and nirvana. These two seemingly very contradictory ideas, right? Nirvana, the essence of bliss, fear, this very primal emotion that people sort of demonize. And the idea is they're actually very complementary. And it's the sort of this, the singularity of the duality, right? These two seemingly contradictory forces that are actually one. 
And it's by unifying them that we actually achieve a greater spiritual enlightenment and a greater spiritual evolution. And, and that's the real essence because people demonize fear. And that was the reason I wrote the book is because we demonize things like fear, stress, and anxiety. And that's the greatest problem. It's the fear of fear that's the problem, not fear itself. And fear of Anna is intended to kind of combat that, to help people embrace their fear and use it and leverage it as an access point to enlightenment or bliss, whatever you want to call it. No, I, I love that because I've seen that, you know, this is advice I think public speakers sometimes get is, you know, are you nervous or are you excited? <laughs> right. Is it's the same physiological process that's going on inside. But then there's something really powerful about how we label it, how we relate to it that actually does, in fact, transform our experience and how we perform. Right. hundred percent. Exactly. I mean, I did a ton of research for the book. Just I mean, it changes the way when we just and what matters is not they did the research on stress, too, and fear. It, what matters is not the emotion itself. It's our relationship to the emotion that changes how we engage it makes a big difference. Yeah. And this is one of those things, again, like universal truths often, maybe always are actually very simple, right? But in some many cases, they're so simple. It's like they're easy to overlook. And this one could change someone's whole life. And clearly it has yours. It has. And it's a blessing because I mean, when I shared this before, I remember I got an email recently from somebody in Australia said, she heard me on a podcast and she said, for the first time in my life, have I ever heard that stress, fear, and anxiety cannot be a negative, that it can be a positive thing. And it's just, and that's the cool thing about it. It's just the mindset. Like as soon as you, it's planted into you, the next time you feel it, you realize that, oh, I don't need to get rid of it, right? Like, and, and we do that all the time because so many people say we should be fearless. Don't be scared. Eliminate stress. The anxiety, you know, we add disorder to all these words. And that's not, it's not the problem. It's our relationship to it. Because like I always say, there are no bad or good emotions. There's only emotions. And any emotion can be leveraged to some, as something useful. It's up to us to do that with consciousness and intention. And that's, that's something I've spent a lot of time in that inquiry as well. You know, because I watched my dad who passed away at 64 due to complications from diabetes and having ignored his health, being driven by very intense emotions to achieve incredible levels of success. But then I look at that and it's like, A, what's the cost you know, and, and B, what was his experience along the way? And I, and I'm, I'm really interested to know what does it take, which is part of why I was so excited to talk to you, because what does it take for us to both achieve at an extraordinary level and to truly enjoy the process? Yeah, no, awesome, awesome question, you know, and I think that I think it's kind of like, I mean, like I say, stress and fear are not bad, but you balance stress with recovery, right? I mean, it's just like working out, you push the body physically, and then you have to rest in order to recover. So I think balancing it with reflection, you know, and you and this, this, this is kind of up, up to you how you do it. So for example, I do everything in a very intense way. So I just spent seven days in a darkness retreat, where we were seven days completely in pitch blackness, isolation and silence for that entire time. Right. And to really go within and to be still within. And that allowed me to see that the the process of what you can experience of life. I mean, uh, I got a lot of awakenings within it and I'm happy to obviously go deeper in a lot of them. But one thing is I just started to feel also a greater joy, a greater self-love, a greater happiness because I'm very driven to the point that if I do you know something, I'm like, OK, how can I push harder? How can I push harder? How can I push harder? Right. And it's like I can be both contentment and discontentment can kind of coexist. You know, it's again that duality. And that's why now, like I can thrive when I'm running 10 miles and not beat myself up that I didn't run 20, you know? And it's sometimes as simple as just choosing to smile and act, like loving it, you know? I mean, when I do ultra marathons, you experience intense suffering, intense suffering when you're going through 50 milers, you know, 60 miles, you go through pain. 
but there's beauty in that pain. You know, you can find joy in the pain. And that's like, that's everything. Because when you learn to develop a positive relationship with suffering, and I, I like to say suffer well, everything becomes beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I I like that perspective and, and absolutely this idea that, you know, pain is inevitable in life, but suffering, you know, how we, how we relate to that suffering and what we make it mean. The difference between a life that sucks, a life where we're a victim and a life of meaning and fulfillment is, you know, how, how we relate to it. And then what we do, you know, as a result, sometimes I think, I actually think this a lot as a parent, you know, of six kids. (laughs) I have six kids now. I don't think I had, I know I didn't have that many when we met, but I think it's a miracle that any of us make it to adulthood. And, and it's, it may be miracle is the word. It's, it's a gift. It's a blessing. It's grace, whatever, however, it's luck, however you want to look at it. But as I, as I read in your book and, and I've listened to you share a bit about your life experience, I wonder if maybe you feel that way, particularly about yourself for some of the challenges you've been through. And I wonder if you'll talk about some of those challenges and then how they've led you to where you are now and writing this book. Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely a miracle that I've made it as far as I have. I mean, it all kind of started um, when I moved to Texas from Singapore and India at 13. Soon after moving there, I got very, very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. Uh, and being the extreme personality I am, I was the first, me and this one other guy were the first person in our group to start going into harder drugs. And he is no longer alive because he od And that could have easily been me. I lost two friends to drug addiction. And I was the one, I mean, I used to cut my arm. I have cuts on my arms, burn on my arms, because I was the one pushing the line in drugs and doing these extreme things in a very negative way, right? Why, do you mind if I ask why? I mean, not every 13-year-old that is kind of transplanted to a new environment engages in this kind of self-destructive behavior. Why do you think it was that you did? Uh, so it was just for the record, it was like two, two, two years later, so maybe when I was 15 or 16. But I think because part of it is, you know, I was very lost. I had moved by this point to four cities uh, by the time I was 13. And I was kind of finding my way. So when I got into a group, I wanted to be the cool one in the group, right? Like, and I happened, and I don't blame my friends. I take full responsibility for my behavior. But I always look back that let's say I had found, somehow found a group of ultra runners. I probably would have gone big time into ultra running back then, you know? Yeah, or a computer nerd. You 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 could have built Microsoft before before Bill and Paul. I would have I would have probably been way ahead in my life at this point. But again, no regrets. But I kind of got into that group and I was very lost. And so I kind of molded into that environment. And I was always, even when I was a kid, like when we used to play games, I would be the competitive one. I had to win everything. I had to be the best at it. I used to get scars from playing rugby and I loved my scars. They were like wounds of war, right? That I earned this. So that kind of mentality was maybe to some degree, I don't know, nature, uh, right? So I don't, I don't know. But when I got into that group, it pushed me into drugs. And then I just took it to the next level. I was like the, the one doing things like throwing knives in the air, by no means a professional at it. And God knows I should have probably been cut many, many times, but somehow I made it, right? And uh, I mean, we used to do a lot of dumb things that could have gotten us killed. And again, I lost two friends to that lifestyle. But I got out actually watching the movie Black Hawk Down. That movie was a trigger that changed my life. I think you've, you've seen it, right? I have. Yeah. Was it 93? Didn't that film come out back in? Because that was this Somalia. It was obviously after the events in Mogadishu. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a, so it's a war movie based on a true story about these rangers in Delta, the special forces that go into Mogadishu, and sort of a simple operation goes horribly wrong. And it just, I mean, it's a amazing reflection of the valor and i mean of course you trot the the horrors of war but like there's a scene for example where these two guys in the, in the chopper gary gordon and randy sugar 
they volunteer to go on the ground, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are about to kind of swarm on this chopper, but they volunteer to go down anyway to protect one of their fallen soldiers. And both of them died, but that guy is still alive today because of their actions. And they received the Medal of Honor posthumously for their valor, which is the highest award uh, in the military for valor. And watching that kind of triggered something in me that what kind of human being has the courage to sacrifice their lives like that for another human being, you know? It, I remember, I mean, I still remember that day watching the movie. And after that, I went over to my friend's house, borrowed the book, and just started devouring book after book on military, on war, on training in the military, on life in combat, everything. And it was, that was something so appealing to me to live in a world where, you, where what matters is the good of the group, to sacrifice yourself. Because war is this very intense experience. It brings out the worst of humanity, but at the same time, it brings out the best. Because you see people doing things like that. You see people jumping on grenades to save their fellow human beings. And I wanted to see what it would bring out. Like I wanted to go into an institution where you live for the good of the group. So almost overnight, stopped doing drugs and decided to join the Marines. But uh, it was a fight to go into the Marines because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in Marine Corps boot camp. So I had to sort of get medical waivers. It took me about a year and a half to kind of fight my way into the Marines. Let me, let me ask you on that point with this blood disorder that I imagine you still have it today. Yeah, it's lifelong. Hmm. And and so I, I understand you got waivers, but what did you do to, because it's one thing to go, I have this condition and I'm just going to power through it. And then you're taking your chances, right? Like there's this risk and, and this potential cost that you're incurring. But what I wonder is in addition to that, and which I, I really admire, and there's a part of me that goes, well, how foolish is that? Like what, what did you do to intelligently manage it or did you? Honestly, at the time, it didn't matter what anybody said. That was my path. Nothing was going to come in my way. Nothing was going to come in my way. So I didn't care what any like the million doctors could have told me that. But yeah. that was who I was going to be regardless. And truth be told, though, back then, I still had a sort of um, fixed mindset mentality about it that, okay, you know, I have this thing, which means because the idea was that I would never be that fit, you know, like I was like, but whatever, I could still do what I needed to do to get in, you know, and uh, like, I'm not gonna, but it was still kind of a fixed mindset, not the way I approach it today, for sure. Yeah. But I just did what I had to do and, and eventually got in. And honestly, if it wasn't a post 9-11 world where there was wars, I don't think I would have gotten in. But here's like a young kid fighting his way in, wanting to go into infantry. So they're like, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> we can do the body. And it turned, it turned out, I mean, obviously, and we'll talk about some of the physical endeavors that you're engaged in today, but just before, and I know I interrupted the flow of that story, but there's one thing I definitely wanted to ask. Did it end up having any kind of consequence for you or impact on your ability to serve and do all the things that you had wanted going in? Or did it work out? you know, as you knew it would when you just went for it. You know, in boot camp, I was not the fittest by any stretch of the imagination. I was falling back on hikes. I was weak in terms of physical fitness. I, you know, powered through just through mentally, but I was definitely not the fittest in boot camp. but I can't blame it on that. I just, I'd come out of drugs fairly recently. I wasn't, yeah. and I, even my training wasn't really on point the way it was. So, you know, I powered through, but I got better. And by infantry school, which was right after boot camp, I graduated as the honor graduate in infantry school, right? And since then, I've just obviously become taken to a whole other level. Yeah. Powered through and then got out of infantry school and I was, you know, <laughs> uh, good to go and, and really keep building from there, of course, until, so, you know, then I got into adventure sports after that. That's how I got fitter and fitter. Yeah. And I know a key part of, of your story is this experience of losing a friend that you were close with. And all of the time that you were there sweeping for IEDs 
and the, the PTSD that came as a result. Will you just touch on as much of that as feels appropriate for people listening to this now? Sure. Yeah. So when I came out of infantry school, I joined this unit in Texas and uh, there was another, another friend of mine there, Neil. We got very close. He was in the unit. We were in the unit, both kind of boots in the sense we were both new Marines. And we kept volunteering to go to war together. We wanted to go together. So every chance we got, we were the only two guys volunteering. The guys who had just come back from Iraq were like, these two are young idiots, don't know what they're doing. But we were like, okay, we wanted to go. And so twice the Marines told us we're going. Last minute they canceled. And, um, and you know, so we, were, so we used to do everything together. But, like, I would always beat him by a few seconds. Like, on a run, I'd beat him by a few seconds. Or on the physical, I mean, on the rifle range, I'd beat him by a few points, you know. So I always felt like I, I would beat him a little bit and we'd compete friendly. But... One summer, while I was here vacationing in India, he ended up finally finding a unit to go out with. And he was a good Marine, so he got promoted to corporal. And as a result, he was in a seat that was hit with an IED, and he was killed. And I always felt that had I gone with him, it should have been me that got in that promotion to corporal. And it should have been me that got killed um, out there instead of him. So that always broke my heart, you know, that always broke my heart that I, I felt like guilty that I was here vacationing and I should not have been, I shouldn't, I should have been staying there. I mean, I thought at that point there was, you know, it wasn't happening. So I'll go off to India, visit family, but I always felt like I shouldn't have been. And I still remember just one story about that. Like when I came back from India, he was at this point already with the unit. I couldn't go at this point. He was training with them. And I remember him calling me and he used to mess with me that I didn't volunteer with him. Like he said, oh, you're off with your girlfriend now, my girlfriend at the time. And so I remember once he called me and I was standing with my girlfriend at the time and I saw his name, Neil, and I didn't want him messing with me while I was standing with my girl. So I didn't answer it and I never got to talk to him again. And so those moments kind of stay with you. And so I remember then when I finally got the chance to go, I kind of went with this mentality that like, I'm not coming back if somebody, and it's a very naive perspective of war, admittedly, but it was like, if somebody's going to die out there, let it be me, not nobody, not anybody else. And again, I, I admit that it's a very naive perspective, but that was kind of how I went out there. And, uh, and you know, it, my war was not what it was. And <laughs> and they came back. And yeah. But, I mean, it was, you know, it was obviously a tough experience. As you said, my, one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of vehicles to look for bombs before they could blow us up. So, um, but it was like, I was happy to do that. <laughs> what, what is that like? I mean, I can't imagine that every day that's gotta be, I would think that would just be terrifying that like literally you wake up and you're like, well, oh, today's the day, <laughs> you know, or, or something. But what, I mean, what is that experience like? What do you look for? How do you know? And how do you know you're not walking into an ambush? Or you're not going to step on a landmine or an IED. I mean, like literally, will you just walk me through what's your approach to that? You know, we, so we would stop whenever there's like a danger zone. So like a bridge, because there's could be bombs planted under, you know, at this point, because of the way the war in 2007, we had these sort of things, I forget what they were called, that blocked the sort of radios, radio signals. So they could, so the bombs that you could use against us were not as advanced. They require wires. As a result, you kind of look for people in the distance who maybe who are, who are watching. They had to be, you look for wires. If you're walking through an area of heavy sand, you're walking around looking for the sand, you know. And you're, you're doing, uh, <laughs> you do the best you can, I guess, but you, you never really know. And the part of it is also just, it's a counterinsurgency environment. So in, in the sense that what I mean by that is you're walking through cities and most people, I mean, they're civilians. So not, you know, 99.9% .9 of us don't want to kill somebody innocent, right? But you never know that same, it's like, again, it was, this was the challenge in Vietnam. You never know if that person is, this was a person who wants to kill you. 
So like one example of that is when we saw women who were wearing the burqas, what the men started doing was sometimes they would wear the burqas because they knew we wouldn't physically search women out of respect to women, but we would sometimes physically search men. But because they, we wouldn't touch women, they would wear the burqas and wrap a suicide vest around them. So every time we saw women, we'd often look at their feet to see if they have sort of manly looking feet. And it's this thing, like you never really know what, but at the same time, you don't want to kill somebody innocent. And it's like this toss up. So you're kind of always a little bit on edge, but also just to kind of qualify, my tolerance of risk was pretty high at this point because I used to do many dangerous things before going to Iraq. I used to free climb rock walls without rope. I used to, I was a mountain climber. I had been ice diving. I had skydived. I'd broken four bones in three months from skydiving and rock climbing. So I was big into these things that pushed my limits. So by the time I got to Iraq, my tolerance for fear and risk was very high, more so than some of the younger, younger kids who were getting out there and a lot more on edge, you know? I was kind of like, yeah, used to the environment to some degree. <laughs> How has that, man, that, that sounds like, first of all, it sounds to me like that would be a situation where your adrenals would just be shot. <laughs> like your ability to ever relax or even get rest, be, you know, sharp mentally, that kind of thing. What's been the, what's been the impact of that after you came home and how did you deal with it? Well, when I first came back, I came back to my senior year of uh, uh, college and I struggled with it. I mean, I was, you know, drinking and I just kept, I was like, you know, screw this. I want to go back to war. So I tried to volunteer to go back. I said, send me to Afghanistan, send me to Iraq. And I said, I don't care. Just send me to some, somewhere. I wanted to go back to war because there's a kind of peace in war. Uh, ironically, there's a simplicity to war and there's a purpose to it. There's the camaraderie to it. There's, there's this heightened experience of life that college was just this, you know, kind of meaningless thing. And college students, again, whining about silly things. But again, I, at that point, I didn't have the awareness I do. So you can't expect everybody to have the same perspective you do, right? We all do the best we can with our level of consciousness. But um, it, at that point, again, I didn't have that awareness. So I was like, these kids don't nothing and I just want to go back. But I didn't get my chance again. You know, volunteering is surprisingly hard. <laughs> so uh, eventually I got again to grad school and then got a corporate job for a year and a half. And then it started to really take its toll. I mean, I was still drinking, but never really thinking it's a problem because, you know, college students drink, whatever, and drinking weekends. I was still getting my grades, really good grades, all that kind of stuff until years later when it was started to really, really take its toll. And, um, and that's when, like, I, at this point, I, you know, I quit my corporate job to ski one. I dragged a 190-pound sled for 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap in the world. And truth what, be told, is I was – sorry, go ahead. What was the corporate job you quit to go do that? Well, I worked with this company, Volt. It was a sales and marketing gig with them. So actually, the day I signed up for that job, I knew exactly which day I would quit because I had already signed up for that expedition a year and a half later. Right. So I was like, I know. And I got the worst part was I got promoted two weeks before trying to quit. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so you signed up. So you had this, this intention for your future. Yeah. As you signed up for the job. And then it was, tell me again, it was how much did the sled weigh? It was a 190 pound sled when we started. It was like 32 days worth of food and supplies to survive in like minus 40 degrees. One of the very hostile environments. In fact, the year after our crossing, a British explorer was killed out there. Wow. So the storms got horribly bad out there. Uh, but we spent a month. And, and again, when I look back though, I was, I was craving environments like that. I was running away. I did not like the normal world. I wanted to go to hostile environments where death is more certain, where life is more simple. And uh, so I was seeking it. And then when I came back from there, I started building my business and, uh, you know, it was going well, but that's when things started to really slide as well in terms of my, uh, you know, now I didn't have the structure of a corporate job. I didn't have this expedition and I just had to deal with my own demons. And that's when they really started to rise. And 
Mm-hmm. It started to get really bad. I had, um, I started drinking more and more. I was having issues to be very frank and vulnerable phys- physically with my wife. And it wasn't anything physical. It was psychological. So that's when my wife at the time finally pushed me to, uh, to go get checked up. And when that's when I started went to the VA, that's when they diagnosed me with PTSD and it was going further and further and it just started spiraling. And one day after like five days of binge drinking, I mean, I'm talking to them. I mean, I was at the point where I'm drinking like liters of vodka and I'm drinking like pass out, wake up, drinking, wake up and pass out, wake up, drinking. And five days later, I woke up and I still remember, I only remember because of the fact that it, my mind was in such a state of chaos. And I remember thinking that this pattern of drinking and sobering, I would never change. So I was like, let's just go to the kitchen, pick up a knife and end it all. And it really horrified me that I could actually think about taking my own life because that was the first time that I thought about doing that. Wow. And that was a, a shocker, as you might imagine. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know some people listening will have been in a somewhat similar place. I mean, as much as all of our journeys are unique, for sure, our experience is our own, that I have this theory that emotions are locations, you know, and we visit places of darkness or places of isolation and this kind of thing. Tell me when you got to that place, what changed? You know, so I, again, I was, I was shocked that I thought that. So I remember kind of going up, uh, my wife, I was downstairs, passed out on the couch. My wife was up at the time was up in the bed and just was just horrified and, um, and thinking through this whole thing, which should be told is after that, I kind of fell right back into the pit, like a week, I think it was a week later, started drinking again, and uh, I went back into the binge. And, and, but, it, but that was the trigger that slowly, it wasn't, I still don't think that there's one magical aha moment that changes. It's like, you can have an aha moment, but then you have to ingrain it. You have to take that habit and like, put it, soak it in. So that it actually creates long lasting change, you know? It's not like one click and suddenly everything magically changes. So, but that was the trigger that started the process to say, okay, something's really got to go differently. And, you know, I was going to the VA therapist, but not to take away from them, they were great human beings, but I realized they were operating from a very bad playbook. And that's when I started reading books on myself, like books on neuroscience, on psychology and spirituality to figure out what's actually happening with me. Yeah. And that's when things started to change. And I, I reframed my, my guilt because I was struggling with guilt. I felt, like, I felt like I had no right to be back. Like, what made me special? Why should I come back from the war? Why, I didn't lose a limb. I didn't get shot. What the hell was I? Like, I wasn't yeah. special. Why did I deserve that, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and this, this next question is not in any way to, to vilify the, the VA, but instead to, to hopefully help illuminate something for people who are listening, who are looking for help in some area of their life, right? Because my experience is, a lot of people will have a sense like, oh, I could use a coach or I could use a therapist. And then if they ever finally have enough pain or find the motivation to connect with one, they often will either go with the first one they find, you know, or they just they'll actually back off after all. But when you say that the VA was kind of operating from a bad playbook, again, not as much about the VA, but about how did you know, like how because I'm hearing you say you trusted your own intuition, your own inner voice. How how did like what was it in the experience of approaching this the, this organization or these people who could have helped you? But then instead turning from that, how did you know it wasn't the playbook for you? You know, and I, I, don't, I don't think it was just the, just the VA, to be honest with you. It was like therapy in general, much of therapy, because I've seen other therapists and much of the, and again, not to demonize all therapists, but many ther- therapies was operating from it. Because I remember coming out of the therapy sessions and I would be driving straight to the liquor store. 
And I granted, I can take responsibility for that, but they would often say things like, no, you know, um, this, this going deeper into this pain is part of the process. And like, and the way, like looking back, like I'll give you an intangible example was when, when the way memory works, they would send you into this dark space and then putting you there and like memories don't work like a video camera. It's not like every time you access, let's say a year ago, you're not accessing that state. You're accessing the last time you access that state. So let's say you keep accessing one year ago, but you keep accessing it from a very disempowered place. Suddenly, a potentially happy memory one year ago can become disempowered and negative because you're accessing the last time you access it. And this is like one key problem with therapy is that they're sending you into a disempowered space over and over and over again and reinforcing a negative memory as opposed to like putting you in a positive space to and then go back because you're, you're changing and you can literally change the neuronal structure of memory. So I, I went deep into the neuroscience of how memories work as one example, but even the way they diagnosed me with PTSD, like they said, because I was guilty, that's a, that's a symptom of PTSD because um, I was jumpy when there's loud noises because I didn't like crowds. But what I came to realize is that post-traumatic stress is not indicative of a disorder. It's a normal response to war. When you come back from war, my brain said loud noises equals death. Of course, it's going to be vigilant than the average person. It doesn't mean it's a disorder. And that label creates a downward spiral. And I've had veteran friends, like a veteran friend of mine went to the therapist and said, and the therapist kept saying, anger is a choice. You need to stop being angry. And he came to me finally when he heard my work. At this point, I was you know, much, much better and everything. And I said, no, man, like anger is not your choice anymore. It's a pattern that, you, that your brain has created. Your goal is not to like choose not to be angry because when the veteran, the therapist told him that he kept thinking, what's wrong with me? Like, why can't I be stop the anger if anger is a choice? And that creates a negative spiral that's very, very destructive. So I had to get out of that. That's powerful. And and when I read that part of Firvana about the past and about uh, how you just said, you know, that our memory does not function like a video recorder, we tend to think it does. And, And in fact, the words in the book that really stood out to me is on page 71, your past is a lie. I was like, holy cow, that's amazing. And as you've said, you know, we know from neuro, neuroscientific research that, as you've already said, literally we change a memory every time we recall the memory. And to be unaware of that, we could just, if you're unaware of that, you could just add that to your list of how many cognitive biases, you know, do you have that you don't even know of? And, and that's one thing I, I really appreciate about your book is that you take a lot of research and then you weave it together with your experience, stories from other people, and present it in a way that is not only understandable, but we can apply it. And it's not as simple as like, hey, don't – often it's not as simple as, hey, just don't be angry. It's just a choice or don't be sad or don't be whatever. But if this, is, this is something that obviously you've lived and it has a quality to it beyond just if somebody told you this one day. So I, I really appreciate that about your book. Thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate you saying that. It was – Definitely a hard thing to write, <laughs> but I'm always blessed when it's making an impact. Yeah. You know, okay. So you mentioned the thing you did in the darkness, the seven days. I understand you went to Germany for that, which, which I want to ask you about. And, and you have also engaged in, you have this, this goal right now, this commitment to run border to border across every country in the world. Right. So I'm, I want to ask you about that, but knowing that and knowing that you have also done all these things, like you mentioned, you know, this mountain biking, scuba diving, rock climbing, ice climbing, anything that forced you to face your fears. And yet having done all of that or being in the middle of doing so much of that, you say in the book, you say in the book that this writing, this book was your ultimate fearvana experience. 
I'm like, wait a minute. Holy crap. For somebody who's been to war, who's done all this stuff, how could writing a book be the ultimate Firvana experience? Will you touch on that for a moment? Sure. Writing a book was absolutely terrifying because you're putting this thing out there and you're always asking, is it going to suck? Is it going to, is it garbage? Is this any good? Are you going to get that one star review on Amazon? Right. <laughs> and all of these things. So it's a really terrifying experience to put this to put to combine your knowledge into this work and you never like it's never going to be perfect right and so like writing this was a really scary experience and that's what i realized again that everything can be scary there's no bad or good fears it's just fear you know i don't that's why i don't even like the term irrational fear it's just fear deeming it irrational somehow like uh it, it creates a negative relationship to that fear but by engaging the fear and i always like to say fear propels you to prepare by engaging the fear you can actually understand it so i asked myself okay what am i scared of you know, why am I afraid? What's the worst case scenario? How can I prepare for that? So I studied from good authors like our mutual mentor, Jack Canfield, uh, to study from him, you know, and obviously he's a master at what he does in terms of writing books. And I studied from people like him, like Tim Ferriss, about how do you write a good book? And because I was afraid, I wrote a better book, a book that was, and you know, I trashed over 100,000 words worth of work to get to this end result. I mean, 100,000 words. That's a lot of work. (laughs) And over, I'm talking like that's a minimum. So, but I got to something that now like I can hand with just anybody and feel truly proud of it. I like confident in its ability that people will enjoy it. People will get value from it, you know? But it was only because I was scared that I could produce something. If I wasn't scared, I'd be like, put whatever out there, you know? And that's the beauty of fear. It actually allows you to engage. I mean, even when I skied across Greenland, I was terrified. So I trained for it. I used to drag tires around the streets of New Jersey for hours to prepare for this thing I was really scared for, you know? And that's why I do things that's scary. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet your neighbors thought you were really weird dragging tires. <laughs> all the time. I got stopped all the time. It was funny when somebody would stop me and be like, what are you doing? And I would tell them what I'm doing. They're like, but why? <laughs> why would you yeah. do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love to the, I hadn't actually heard this before, but I love the, the quote, you included of Sir Edmund Hillary about it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Yeah. It's like, Oh man, it's powerful. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful quote. I mean, all these trips we climb, like, you know, it's not, it's, it's the journey within that matters when you're running uh, an ultra marathon, when you're, uh, you know, skiing across an ice cap, it's not that, that it's not what matters. It's what happen, happens here. It's happened within that makes a difference. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Okay. So in just a moment, I want to transition us to the lightning round, but before we go there, um, if you will, please share with me about this experience of spending seven days in isolation, silence, and darkness. Like, how did you even learn about it? Where did you go to do it? Why did you do it? And what did you get out of it? Yeah. Uh, so um, I was actually going to do one of those silent retreats, like a Vipassana, you know, a 10-day silent retreat. Dude, everybody does those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's all I knew. I didn't know yeah. darkness retreats existed. The reason I was even going to go was because, and I talk about this even in the book, is that one of my greatest fears was stillness. With all the doing, with all the running, I was, I was very, you know, I was terrified of being still. So I wanted to engage that fear. <laughs> and I'd also gone through a fairly challenging uh, divorce. My wife had was battling some of her own demons, moved into a meditation ashram. And our marriage ended and we were deeply in love. And I talk about her a lot in the book. So when that ended, it was, you know, it was challenging. And so I was like, all right, it's time to, and I actually broke my sobriety during that, when that happened as well. So I was like, okay, there's some gaps, obviously, clearly that I need to work on. And uh, that's what had me say, okay, let's go, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper within. And while researching these silent retreats, I stumbled upon the idea of a darkness retreat. And I was like, 
I mean, me being me, I'm going to take the most extreme path possible. So I was like, forget about a silent retreat. Let's go into silence, darkness, and isolation for a week. Uh, so I did, did the research again and found this one in Germany. It would look like a really, really good one, and it was amazing. And uh, decided to go do a week, a week out there. And you basically, I mean, you sit in a room. In, you, you, there's options where you could do it with like a counselor. They come in. And, I mean, you still stay in darkness, but a counselor. I decided, you know, nobody, just isolation with me. And you just sit in this room in pure isolation and silence for seven days in pitch darkness. Like you cannot see your hand in front of you darkness. And it is wild what happens to you and to your brain and to the um, experience. And you start seeing lights. You have these crazy light shows that are just surreal light shows. But by going so deep within, you kind of discover a lot more within yourself. Because, I mean, we live in a world that so runs away from stillness, right? Yeah. We're never still, never still. <laughs> yeah, especially in America. I mean, globally, to be sure, but in America where it's progress, it's innovation, it's productivity, you know, absolutely. Yeah, and the thing is, though, that like stillness actually contributes to productivity. I, I, without a doubt, you know, that's why we now we see like meditation and all that kind of thing. But I was taking stillness to an extreme, but we just running away from ourselves. And the thing is, when we actually go within, it's scary. It's hard. You're going to find your demons. <laughs> but what I found within was actually not so much my demons. And I found just a greater sense of joy and self-love. I found like great answers to things I was struggling with, abstract concepts like the meaning of life. What is God? What does enlightenment mean? I mean, again, I'm not saying my answers are the right answers, but I got answers to questions like that that satisfied me at least. Well, well let me ask you this on those on that topic. Did the answers you get come in like fully formed linguistic phrases or was it a sort of knowing? I mean, tell me a little bit more about that because when you say that, it's like, well, how soon can I get to Germany? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> uh, and obviously, you know, everybody's going to have, I mean, like the lady who runs the tree told me about people come there and they, they go, they've, they've experienced like the, a lot of the trauma will come up and then they heal that. But see, I had already navigated a lot of my demons, right? So that's why I was in a, I was in a different space. And that's why for me it was, more at this point, like I realized the big gap in my life was still joy. I was still very driven, but it was, I was not really to the core of my being happy. And I kind of knew that, but I really tapped into it in, uh, in, in the darkness. And it is really annoying because you're just sitting there still in darkness. I mean, you have moments where you're like, man, it's got a lot of time left in the darkness and I just got to be here. But, <laughs> but other than that, you know, you're, you're sitting still and I, I was journaling in the dark as well. So I would be journaling, processing my thoughts, sitting there sometimes just meditating for God knows how many hours, just being within and looking, looking at these light shows that I would see. And so it was a real deep knowing of what to me is the essence of God, what to me is the essence of enlightenment. Um, and I felt it, like I felt what it means to be that, to know that, you know? And, uh, and that was deeply, deeply powerful. But like by far the most powerful experience was actually coming back to the light for the first time. Coming back to the light. I had, again, I had many beautiful insights in the dark, but coming back to the light for the first time in seven days was awe-inspiring. I don't even know if that's the right word, but it was humbling. I mean, you look at the world with different eyes. And I just remember thinking that, like, I wish I could look at the world every day through these eyes. And I remember thinking also that, like, you have to go through darkness to experience light this way. You know, obviously in a literal sense, but obviously I mean that in a metaphor metaphorical sense. And I remember feeling this deep gratitude for all the pain I've experienced in life because every pain, every suffering that I've experienced in life has led me to this. And I know that I experience greater lows. To this day, I have deep, deep, deep lows that I struggle with, but I have deep, deep highs as well. And I think the in, experiencing the intensity of the human experience at that level is 
amazing. Like I can't experience life at a mundane level anymore, but I'm grateful for that. So coming back to the light and just feeling that, you know, you, you need to go dark to, to see light. And when you do, you look at the light in a different way and it's so worth the journey. As hard as it is, it's so worth the journey. You got to go, you got to go fight, your, not fight, but face your demons and engage them and make them a part of you. They're not your enemy. No, that, that's amazing. Well, how did you journal in the dark and how did you eat? How did you, how did you sleep? How did you take care of your other bodily functions? Like how, as a practical matter. And then did you ever know what time it was or was it just, yeah, how did all that work? Yeah. Uh, so as far as like logistics, what they do is they, you can choose three options in this particular trade. You can choose a water fast, uh, smoothies or food. I didn't want to go a full water fast because I'm, I'm an ultra runner. I don't have any more weight to lose and I was going to come out and continue training. So, but I went like middle ground. I did smoothies. So what they do is three times a day, they bring the smoothie and they ring a little bell. And then you kind of spring, come out of your room and you grab a smoothie on this table. You're still in the dark, like that area is still dark, but you grab the smoothie. Uh, and then that happens three times a day. But it's not at the exact same time. So you have, you know, they vary the time. So you're not really have a sense of time. But the room's not soundproof. So my only sense of time was in the morning when I heard the birds. So I didn't have a sense of hours, but I had a sense of days. Mm. That's like that. So as far as logistics of that and the time. But yes, there was a bathroom and, you know, there was a bathroom as well. And so you just go in the dark. <laughs> wow. How'd you journal in the dark? You just kind of hoped you, you were writing on a blank page and <laughs> I had, so I, you know, I had like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it was obviously like scattered in terms of the lines, but I would put like a kind of ruler, uh-huh. uh, you know, and then write on that ruler and then move the ruler down to make sure I'm not writing over myself. So in like one page where it should have been 20 lines, if you're looking, it'd be like six lines. But at the same time, it was still legible. I mean, thankfully yeah. I came out and I was like, oh, great. I could actually read all of this. And it was totally worth it because the insights that I wrote later on, I remember reading it like a few days later and I was like tearing up just reading my own journal. I was like, whoa, this is deep. Uh, I've actually thought that writing my next book, I should go just live in the dark for a month and just write there. I think that would be really cool. So if I understand what you're saying, that you literally had the experience of being in incomplete darkness, of course, knowing you're in darkness, but actually perceiving light as though the room were illuminated. Is that what you're saying? As real as it can, as real as anything else that you're seeing. And the lights vary. I mean, uh, what I saw in the first three to two, three days, I would see these purple light shows, almost like, you know, like a lava lamp. Wow. I would see purple light shows. And then lay, later on, they started becoming this, like these red and green lights. I mean, the room would look completely red. And I remember a few days when I was maybe five, six days in, I would actually, my eyes would be closed. And I remember a couple of times touching my own eyelid because I was like, Am my eyes actually closed? And it was so bright because often when, like when I'm on a plane, I sleep with an eye mask because, I, you know, the eye mask covers the light. But I'm in pitch darkness and it was so bright that I couldn't sleep, wow. which is surreal, right? And it's as real as you can, anything you could possibly imagine. And in fact, on day six, I had this wild experience where I was lying down and my, I was felt paralyzed. Like I felt like I couldn't move my arms and looking up at the ceiling and just seeing these red and green light shows. And it must have been hours hours and just like sitting there and feeling paralyzed just going like whoa and at points it felt like the bed was moving i felt like i was traveling like i felt like i was moving and kind of you know i was like whoa and every time it would fade i would just say to myself please god help help me help me go deeper help me go deeper help me go deeper and then it would kind of come back and i can't even tell you how long it was before it finally um uh came out and the lady who i spoke to about it later she said what i experienced was apparently the start of an astral projection I had no idea, but that's what she told me. And 
I was like, wow, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, that no, that that is. And I wonder, did you ever wonder at any point if this was an LSD flashback? <laughs> I actually, funny, funny you mentioned that. I actually did not. But huh. <laughs> because it so, I mean, it sounds like what I hear psychedelic experiences describe, you know. But, exactly. But she actually said that she said that and every single person who goes into the dark sees their own version of lights. I mean, different, whatever, whatever colors it's, she says it's as real as like anything. And literally, apparently every single person wow. uh, uh, sees it. Yeah. So it's, and it was wild. <laughs> so just if you're willing, uh, would you share the name of the, who organized this and, and just give us an idea of what someone could expect to pay for this kind of amazing experience? It was uh, dark. I think the website is darknessretreat.net. Uh, I mean, if you Google darkness retreat, they're actually the first ones that come up, darknessretreat.net. And, I, and the cool thing is they actually list other darkness retreats on their own site. <laughs> so they're not like trying to be competitive. You know, they're just sharing everything. But they look like one of the most um, like professionally run ones, and they really were. They were on point. Uh, beautiful people, beautiful experience. And I think I paid for seven days with the smoothies. It depends what you choose. Uh, about $1,000. Oh, that's that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, yeah, it's not crazy expensive by any means. I mean, you could do that on a vacation. My vacation was darkness. When it comes to taking on something so damn ambitious, right? That any one of us would, we all have our equivalent of that. That we kind of hope for. Maybe we've forgotten. We don't really allow ourselves to dream. What do you say to people who are in this situation of like they've got this big aspiration, this BHAG or whatever they might call it, <laughs> but they're not for whatever reason doing it. What do you say in terms of like actually going for it and organizing your life, maintaining a marriage, staying healthy, keeping your income or whatever? Like what can the, the quote unquote, the normal human being take from what you're doing instead of just looking at it and going, well, yeah, Akshay is just crazy. He's that's just the kind of extreme person he is. What do you say to the average person who's stuck not yet pursuing their dreams like that? Yeah, uh, I mean, of course, it's 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 hard, you know, like the first it's without a doubt really challenging. And coming back to the one thing I said earlier, like the fundamental thing is the most important thing you can do is start developing a positive relationship to suffering. We live in a world that feeds easy and there's plenty of experts out there that saying here's the easy way to develop habits. And the more you fit into that person, like that mentality of easy, you're just you're dooming yourself for failure right now. So first off, just set up that whatever path you pursue, there's going to be a great deal of suffering and pain and hardship. But that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Once you no. accept that reality, that's the foundation. Yeah. And, and, and Akshay, honestly, the way you phrased this was it opens something up for me when you say by making our lives easier, we are not making our lives better. Exactly. Easier is not better. And you see that. You see that all the time today. I mean, that's why more young kids are struggling with depression, with suicide, with all these kind of things. Because I mean, many reasons, but part of it is that we live in a world seeking out easy. If adversity is like, not only, it's not only inevitable, but I believe it's desirable. And when we actually seek it out, we're actually setting ourselves up for, in a way, an easier life. So first off, accepting that. When you do that, that's the, like, that's the essence of the mindset piece right there. And then it's kind of breaking down the chunk into small goals. Like, like even when I run, like, let's say a hundred miler, right? Or, uh, you know, 50 miler, you can't think about mile 50. You're stepping stone, you're, you're breaking it down into small little chunks and you keep at it. like you, you're training in the in the little chunks one day at a time, and it's and you're going to go through falls. You're, it's inevitable. You're going to go through falls, but when you when you start building that habit pattern, it becomes a part of you. And this is another thing. Like it's I don't like the idea of this work life balance myth. It's like consume yourself. Obsession is a beautiful thing. Consume yourself in the path that you want to pursue. Let it like consume you. Let it devour your soul. Like let it devour your soul. And then you're going to have to, one other thing, 
realize that as you're going through this journey, you are not your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. You're going to feel self-doubt. And this is another thing that angers me with like the sort of expert industry. There's so many people saying, eliminate fear, eliminate stress, self-doubt. You, you know, here's how to be confident. Don't expect to be confident. Like when you pursue something, you cannot be confident if you've never done it before. So don't expect to be confident. Confidence is the result. It's not the fuel. Commitment is the fuel. And commitment comes from the willingness to suffer well, as I like to say. So remember, you're not your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. You're the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings, and the experiencer of your experiences. So if there was one thing I could say, one single thing, is if you master that space between what is and who you choose to be outside of what is, that space is your destiny. That space is your destiny. So like one mantra I like to say is, be with what is, but do not become what is. Be with what is, but do not become what is. And when you do that, that's, I mean, there's all kinds of little things about goal setting and that kind of stuff, right? The, uh, if setting the goal, breaking into chunks. And I think that kind of stuff is more out there. But I think it's more, what matters more in terms of your question is the, the mindset piece, because that's going to trap everybody. You can go Google stuff on goal setting and set the little chunks and all that. But the willingness to suffer well is the fundamental barrier. And then realizing that, okay, I can feel self-doubt. I don't have to be confident. I just saw this, this huge personal development guru talking about how you should be confident. And it's, it's, and it's such a destructive mindset. Because then people, like, I'll give you an example again. Sorry, I go on rants because it frustrates me. But, <laughs> but I was working with this guy who said, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job and start my business. And I said, that's your problem, man. You're waiting for the fear to go away. Because he thought he should be fearless. He should be confident. I'm like, no, man. How can you be confident? You've never done this before. Be scared. As long as you, when you get comfortable with that fear, you, you're able to suffer well. That's when you will succeed. And you have to train in that. Like go out there and practice suffering, you know? Exercise is obviously my favorite way, but I love it because it's a simple thing everybody can do. I mean, barring serious physical issues, it's a simple thing almost everybody can do. So it'll train you in the art of suffering. And as you get better and better at it, you'll be able to like handle whatever life throws your way. And of course you'll fall, like God knows I've fallen, but you will at least have a stronger ability to get back up. I can see how that, that perspective. It's kind of like a bundle of perspectives. If one really got, and not just at the intellectual level, like, yeah, I'm not my feelings. I get that. But if they really had the experience of not being their feelings, how that could in fact be liberating. And that's why, that's why right from the start, we said self-transcendence, right? That's what this is. This is self-transcendence is not just in service of something greater, but even in service of yourself, transcend your feelings. That's why I love ultra running. Like when I do long distance running, it's like a microcosm for life. I experience intense pain, intense highs, moments in between where there's nothing. And when you're in that intense pain, you have to rise above that pain. Suffering is an access point to self-transcendence, which is the essence of life, in my, in my uh, opinion. And I think, again, arguably, like you said, spiritual concepts would agree. So suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence. So put yourself in suffering, and you will learn to transcend that. I'm not saying you got to go run a 100-mile or a marathon. Hell, do one mile. Do half. Wherever you're at, it's okay. There's no right or wrong. I didn't get here overnight, right? But wherever you're at, just start and push that limit. And then keep pushing it and push it farther than you think you could. And I guarantee you'll start building a self-transcendence muscle. Well, and, and what you say, too, about no fear is irrational or unreasonable. And this part of what I'm taking away from what you're saying is this thing about acceptance, about you know, being with what is, you know, being honest with it, being accepting of it, and then just using that as the starting point, because it doesn't serve anyone to be honest or to be ignorant, you know, of where we are or where we want to be. And what you're saying, although it can sound conceptual, 
I think we all have the opportunity to actually live this in the unique circumstances and events of our own lives. Yeah. You're feeling fear before talk, right? And you still talk anyway. That's transcending. I mean, it's all the, it's a, it doesn't have to be something crazy like running 100 miles. It's all these little things. And we all, we all go through it. So when you notice it, like ingrain it within your soul and, and leverage it as the next stepping ground. Well, it's something you said too, because this whole conversation about perspective and how we choose to view things or experiencing things, um, just this question, it's kind of a silly question, but I just want to bring it up here. If you try to fail and succeed, which have you done? <laughs> mm, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so much of this is perspective, right? It's great. Okay. All right. So let's transition to the lightning round. I want to ask you about 10 questions. Okay. So question number one, using words other than a box of chocolates, please complete the following sentence. Life is like a playground. Thank you me first. <laughs> All right. Number two, what's something at which you wish you were better? It, uh, what's something I wish you were better? I guess that like, um, scaling businesses rapidly. Okay. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Suffer well. Mm. <laughs> Number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, the Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Okay. Um, why that? Man's Search for Meaning. I got to throw that one in there. Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl. <laughs> yeah. That, in fact, is the most common book. That's the most common answer for guests on my podcast. Yeah. I, I forget that it's those two because I do recommend Master to Meaning a ton. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Tell me why, why Success Principles? I liked his book because I thought it was a good summary of a lot of different principles. Uh, uh, so I, but I, that came to me more, more like first because I just recently recommended it. But I would have to say if I, it was if the most was definitely man's search for meaning because I recommend that a ton. It just, like I said, it just came because I was recent, but yeah, yeah man's search for meaning, I think is just the essence of everything. I mean, it's such a profound book, but I did like six friends because I think it's a good summary and you know, yeah. it's a deep, you know, of a lot of personal building concepts. Okay. Next question. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, my favorite thing is exercise as soon as you hit the ground, wherever you go, you'll get a reject lag rate that like that, like whenever I travel, I'm putting on my running shoes and I'm out there just exploring the place. Plus it's a really cool way to explore the place. Yeah. Do you find that cardio, like running, like you're saying is more effective in that, or even just doing like strength training, pushups or anything isometric, anything, what works best for you? I love running, obviously, uh, obviously, but, <laughs> but I also think because it's a cool way to see the place. You see so much more. I mean, I just remember recently I was in Bhutan. As soon as we landed, I put on my running shoes, went out there and did like a 10, like 10 mile or something like that. And I got to see the land in a different way than you would if you're just driving around, right? So yeah. I like it. But I mean, I think doing anything will, I mean, I actually even do exercise on the plane. I do push-ups on the plane. I'll, uh, so that's all. It just it just gets the blood flowing and it, it gets over the jet lag, gets over that you know thought of like bogginess of travel, and you're you're hitting the ground running. Like, excuse the. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you know how dirty those airplane floors are? <laughs> I, I hear things. I hear things, but <laughs> no. I've been in some poor conditions, so I'll be okay yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. It, what about, is there anything that you make sure to take with you a certain alarm clock or supplements or a certain kind of pillow, or you mentioned an eye mask, like, is there anything that 
is always in your backpack, your carry on when you travel? My supplements, like I got my green powders. Uh, I got uh, like, yeah, green powder is fundamental to, to always keep me get the alkalizing the body. But nowadays, especially I carry my hammer supplements. Uh, I was recently sponsored by hammer nutrition. So that transformed my running. And uh, so I carry my supplements is like the go-to. I don't go anywhere without them. Mm, right on. Okay. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, I stopped drinking and, <laughs> and yeah, I stopped drinking and started like, yeah, I mean, I eat very, very, very healthy. So that, that keeps me uh, on point. My supplement, I think green powder is taking those in. Yeah. All, all of that kind of just, yeah. Putting the right stuff in your body. Are you vegetarian? I'm not though. Yeah. So I do eat meat. I know. <laughs> well, no, I mean, for how much you do, I'm, and I ask for my own curiosity because over the last few years I've transitioned to a vegetarian lifestyle and I'm concerned it will catch up with me that I haven't consciously done anything to replace the protein that I'm not getting from meat. And I wondered if you might have something that's worked for you, but, um, no, I still eat my meat. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Next question. What's one thing you wish every American knew? stop looking for the easy quick way out <laughs> to to like to yeah the americans like are, are binge watching tv eating fast food or we're just looking for easy and, and i just think that i wish we would we would all embrace suffering in a in a in a more deep and powerful way for our own happiness it's a weird business model i have like my you know businesses are generally there to solve people's problems and make their life easier mine is designed to make people's life tougher <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people are looking for that, though, whether they know it or not. No. I agree. I think that's a hidden secret of the world that we want to suffer well, but we, yeah. but we're trapped in a, in a way of an environment that feeds into uh, easy, and so ultimately we're all affected at the effect of our environment unless we really exercise a high degree of self awareness to rise above it. I I totally agree. I have this philosophy that we engineer circumstances, relationships to keep us in. But anyway. This is your lightning round. I'm going to get us back to it. Okay. Okay. Um, what's the best relationship advice you've ever received and successfully applied? To acknowledge each other more. Um, I can't remember who, who gave it, but I remember uh, when what my wife and I started doing this thing that my wife at the time, uh, at the time started doing this thing where every evening we would, add, we would just say, what would you like to be acknowledged for? Or what can I, and we would actually acknowledge our, like we would first say, like say, what would you like to be acknowledged for? So we would say, or like they would, you know, tell me what I want, uh, what, and then we'd also say, and I also want to acknowledge you for, because we live in a world that only points out the wrong, right? Like, and again, it's nobody's fault, but it's just kind of human nature. I mean, with kids, right? What do you do? Don't do this. This is what you shouldn't do. How often do we actually praise what's right? And I think if you do that more often, everything will be better in all your relationships. Acknowledge people more. I think that's a really cool thing about asking, what would you like to be acknowledged for? Yeah. You know, and to create that. Oh, well, yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't get that. And sometimes, and it's nice to ask and say, hey, you know, I feel like I did this and you weren't, and I wasn't acknowledged for it. So acknowledge me and then you do it. And <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, it was a good, it was a good, good question to, to ask each other. Yeah. And you can do that with friends, with family, with parents, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm reminded, you know, I'll be running a coach training program next, next month and I'm going to use that. Awesome. (laughs) I hope it makes a difference. Have the participants invite, you know, that. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I'm going to put this in here to make sure that that I include it and not try to squeeze it in at the end. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you or follow you uh, and your work, what would you have them do? 
You can find me at fearvana.com. It's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, fearvana.com. And the book is also on Amazon. 100% of the profits in the book are going to charity. So we're supporting some really, really amazing causes through the book. So uh, yeah, on Amazon and finding me at Fearvana. Wow, that's awesome. And speaking of um, giving, as a way of expressing gratitude to you for the, the time that you've devoted to sharing your experiences and your knowledge with me and, and our guests, um, I've gone on Kiva.org and made a micro loan to an entrepreneur in West Bengal, a woman named Purnima. She's 27 years old. She has a family of four members, and she's going to use this money to help purchase more vegetables in order to expand her business. Love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Beautiful, man. No, I love that. We actually have a, like, we have a, so Fearvana also has a Fearvana foundation. So we have a fearvanafoundation.org as well. That's another place you can find me and the work we do. We're still updating some of the work we do, but yeah, it's on there. That's beautiful. Well, great. Okay. So the last part of our conversation here, um, I want to talk a little bit about your creative process and I want to talk about your approach to thought leadership and how you, I say market, but market marketing is one of those words for me, like mindfulness. I don't love it. I don't, I feel like what the heck does it mean? And is it something that I even want in this kind of thing? But I think if people, I think people listening to this and who've hung in here knowing that we would get to this part of the conversation, they are in fact people who have their own creative pursuits, who have a message they want to share with other people. They maybe haven't figured out exactly what it is or how to package it and how to communicate it to other people. And I know this is not necessarily a simple question because there's these two components. There's getting the book done and then there's also telling the world about it. And I want to ask you about both of those and what your thoughts are. So where should we start? <laughs> I'll ask you. <laughs> yeah, I guess we can start with the writing process. But in a way, you actually also want to be thinking about the marketing or the end result as you're writing the book, which I think a lot of authors don't do. And it's a good idea to be thinking, what's the end result you want as you're writing it? Because so you can me, actually write for that audience. Sorry to jump in, but I, I want to ask because I agree with you. And I didn't interrupt earlier when you were talking about this, because, but, I, but I thought, what about begin with the end in mind? When you were talking about the 50 miler, you can't be thinking about mile 50. You got to be thinking about the next step. And, and so I agree. I think there's a logic to, to both of these. But tell me how you, you apply that to the act of marketing and creating this work. Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking at the, okay, who do I want to reach with this book, right? And I mean, you see, the idea of fear can pretty much apply to every single human being on earth, right? So, uh, but at the same time, you don't want to, you don't want to phrase it that way. So I kind of niche down who do are my key audiences, which were athletes, entrepreneurs, parents, students, and veterans. Um, they were kind of me. I mean, I wasn't a parent, but I was, I was a, you know, I, I screwed up a lot in my life as a student. So it kind of tied into parents. So those are my five audiences. And I wanted to also like the most powerful stories in the book that I believe the most powerful are from these incredible women. And, you know, you read these two women, especially that they share these stories. Uh, so I wanted to, 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 because I wrote that intentionally in the sense that I'm thinking about who do I want to reach with this book and that result that you're writing stories accordingly that will relate to that audience. And you really want to be thinking that that ahead of time, it makes a big difference in how you write. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's one of the key pieces of advice often given to beginning writers of know your audience. So here we see that that's not just theory from a classroom, but here you've applied that and obviously it's worked. So. And like simple formats that really, I think hopefully for, for creatives that would at least really made a difference for me was like two, two, two kind of formats that I, the templates to follow was story point action 
So if you look at all my chapters and every, every chapter starts with a story, a story is always a good way to get some. I mean, we all know that, right? Like a story is how you engage people, how you get them in, involved in the conversation. So story starts the point, like what is the point, what's the what, and then the action. So I always like to translate an action step. This was my big beef with a lot of personal development books. They're just ideas and theories. What, like what's the action to do? So that's why at the end of every mind chapter, I have, you know, training exercises. So one is story point action. And the other one is why, what, how, now. So what's the why? Why should I care about this thing? What's the what? Like, what is the actual thing? How do I go do this thing? And what's the immediate action step to take? This was a game-changing formula for me. So if you look at my book, that's how I do it. Why, what, how, now? So my original draft of the introduction, for example, was I went right into saying, fear is not the enemy. Fear is your friend, like the original draft. And thankfully, I learned stuff along the way and did not publish that first draft because then I didn't do that because now you're, you're shattering people's notions right off the bat. And that didn't make sense. So what I did now in the introduction is like, why should you care? I mean, you see in the introduction I'll, I'll right there. I say that something like uh, I, mean, I, I phrase a one liner where I'm like, I know you're experiencing some challenges in your life. That's why you're reading this book. So I'm inviting them to experience the journey with me that we're about to go on. Right. So why, what, how now and story point action were two kind of basic formulas that, that helped guide me uh, throughout the, throughout the journey as well. Uh, but yeah. And, and then, so that, and every chapter is, you know, breaking into chapters, breaking into smaller chapters. Uh, so it makes it easier to read for people. Those are little things that make a big difference as well. How did, how did you find your stories? Because I know this is something that can be challenging. It's been challenging for me. I think it's challenging for a lot of people where stories, when they're done well, they you're right. They're memorable. They're effective. They're motivating like this kind of thing, but they're also almost invisible. It's almost like the water that we swim in, right? What's your advice about, or your experience of identifying stories, kind of figuring out how to chunk them down and where to insert them into a a book that you're sharing with people? Oh, it was, I mean, it's a constant editing process. I mean, I change stories all around, like the introduction, which is one of the most important parts of the book because you got to get people in it. The amount of times that was edited to figure out which story to actually use in the introduction was like ridiculous. So, you know, as you're finding it, it's a little bit of a process of playing around. And that's one thing too. One, one huge writing tip while you're writing, don't edit. <laughs> I was doing this initially and that's a bad idea. When you're writing, just write, write flow, like just keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. You edit later. That was a big mistake I made initially in the writing process. So one sort of side tip, but finding stories, I mean, in terms of finding him, it's like, it was a little bit of a luck, luck for me to find such incredible stories of these unknown people. These weren't, I mean, I share some famous stories, but you know, the most powerful ones, in my opinion, like from Alice and this lady Charu at the end, women who's paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, and that was just an aunt of mine. You know, this woman, Alice, I happened to meet somewhere. She told me her story because we just connected. And I was like, can I use you in her book? I mean, can I use your story in my book? And we actually changed her name because she didn't want to share her story. I mean, it's an incredible story. You read it. Woman yeah. was raped when she was a child and gang raped when she was 15. Awful. I mean, just crazy things. But her, how she responded to it was unreal and just incredible. So it was sort of luck, but sort of you're also digging, you're also finding, you're talking to people. You got to get out there, put yourself out there, listen to some shows. Maybe there's something in there. So, you know, you, somebody could find a story and by listening to some of these shows, um, and then it's just, yeah, really playing around which story fits where. So even Alice's story, it actually moved chapters around a lot before it finally ended up in the chapter that it, that it did. Um, but you're going to have to just write and flow. And then when you edit, then you'll figure out, oh, maybe this goes better. And writing stories is hard. Like writing those stories, like writing Alice's story of how she was raped was an incredibly hard story to write because you have to tell that with, you have to tell that with enough 
um, like to convey the, the horrors of what she went through, but you don't want to get so graphic that it's just like, you know, too much. Right. And it's like this dance between that. I mean, I can't tell you how many edits that story went through. <laughs> yeah. uh, same thing with my buddy Dale's story and Charu's story. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot about that, like using evocative Im- imagery and, um, and you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of writing techniques. I went to journalism school. So that thankfully that also helped my, Ability to tell a story and, and get some power phrases in there, but read books that relate to you. That'll give you some idea on how to write for sure. Tell me a bit about how you structured the process and then how you organized each day, because I heard you say like you scrapped a hundred thousand words. That's a lot of words. That's almost too like regular length books, but how, so I, I love that advice too, about don't edit, like get it written get it written first. But I imagine part of what, and, and you can correct me if this isn't the case, but I imagine part of what allowed you to do that was you had a map of where you were going, of what you were writing. And so how did you approach like the outlining, the organization, the structure of the thing? And then how did you actually use your time each day or regularly to get that complete? Sure. So first you want to start, like a great way to start is writing a book proposal. So write a book proposal before you actually write the book. Even if you're not looking for a publisher, it's just a good tool to get your thinking. Because in the book proposal, you're actually writing. Who is your target audience? You're writing what are competitor books. You're, you're writing a, an outline. You're writing a, a first chapter. You know, you're breaking this whole thing down. And the outline becomes your guide. Now, with that said, I completely scrapped my entire outline in my book proposal. But part of the reason is because my book took three years to write. For many reasons. It was a cathartic process for me. I was kind of, I was actually completely sobered up while writing my book. It was engaging my own demons. It was procrastination for sure. <laughs> um, it was all of those things, right? That, that the research, I mean, I read over a hundred plus books, hundreds of books to really get to that. You've seen the research that's in there. Um, so a lot of research, tell, finding these stories, all of that took a lot of time. And as a result, it, like I had evolved as a person by the end, which is why like I pretty much scrapped the entire first draft to rewrite almost the whole book. Like I, I had submitted a full draft to the publisher. And then I remember it was like actually New Year's Eve. I can't remember which year, but New Year's Eve, I still remember. And then I scrapped pretty much all of that to rewrite it. So I don't recommend doing that. <laughs> like I would recommend chunking it into six months and not giving yourself more time than that for sure. But again, and like, you know, find your own writing cave. Like for me, I wrote only at night. I realized that kind of over time, you got to experiment and play. I realized that I just write when the world is kind of dead outside. So I would literally be kind of sleeping most of the day and, you know, and then waking up and writing all night. Like some days I'd be in flow and I'd see the sunrise and not even know that many hours have gone by. Right. But other days, not so much. And so, like I said, though, my outline completely changed also as doing all this. So you start with an outline, but it's a good way to kind of break sections. You know, like my, my thing is set three in, into three sections, um, awareness and acceptance, action and awakening. So you're really thinking, okay, what, a good way to also do this, and sorry, I'm all over the place, I know, but I'm thinking as I'm talking, is what are the problems that these people are experiencing? Like my audience, the readers, what are the problems they're experiencing? And you can even write this down, right? Then a full list of the problems. Okay, how can I address these, right? Like, it's like my chapter, I mean, my book, I go into willpower. There's literally entire books about willpower, right? So um, I had to condense things that were entire books into one chapter, you know, um, mindset. I talk about the growth mindset. There's an entire book on that. So, so cha- that was challenging, but breaking in these sections and then finding your writing style. Some people write better in mornings. Uh, I think I've heard Tim Ferriss is also a night writer, but I was just a night writer and that worked for me. So don't like forget about what the world says, how you should be just write Like what, whatever works for you, do that. And then yeah. like commit to it entirely. <laughs> what did you find worked for you in terms of 
I want to, for some reason, the French word accoutrement is coming up. But like what what things in your space were useful? Did you brew tea? Did you have a plant? Did you light a candle? Did you have certain slippers? Or, you know, was there some stuff that was kind of, it was there as your go-to? Yeah, it, it is. It's a good idea to have like a kind of a ritual that puts you into the, like, okay, it's, it's writing time, right? So, yeah. like, I had a particular chair that I would sit in. It was, I think, this, um, this like, this, this, that, what do they call it? Those, anyway, I had this particular place that I would go sit. One of the things I like to do is because I love the Dark Knight movie, so I had a Batman onesie. <laughs> My Batman onesie was like, okay, I'm in Dark Knight writing mode. Uh, that- I don't think you've admitted that anywhere else, Akshay. I've done a lot of research, and I haven't heard that yet. This one is the first. <laughs> My Batman onesie. <laughs> That's awesome. I love the Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight series. So anyway, so yeah, finding kind of little rituals to put you in this space. Uh, I had, you know, uh, and for me, I, I, you know, I obviously, like I've heard some people drink wine. Obviously, I wasn't drinking, but you can make some tea. I just had water. Like that wasn't, uh, but yeah, find your, find your thing. And it'll take a little bit of experimenting, you know, to play around with what, what works. But uh, once you do, then just like go all in and you got, you got to get the support of the people around you, you know? So my wife at the time was like, all right, do whatever you got to do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I'd be sleeping during the day and writing all night and, and you're going to have this, you're going to have those days where you're sitting there staring at your computer screen and nothing is coming out. Like if you, if you're not able to fight those days, you're not going to finish your book. <laughs> yeah. You've got to suck it up. It's going to happen. I mean, maybe not for somebody listening, like good for you. For me, it definitely happened. Yeah. I think it's common. I think it's very common for sure. Yeah. So, but face it and then keep, keep fighting, keep coming back. Uh, and just like, like one thing that also helps is remembering that like what this is about, like what's the why behind this. I know a lot of people say, remember your why, but it does make a difference, you know, because yeah. like it took me so long, but when I finally finished it was realizing that like, what if I would have died tomorrow, not having actually gotten this thing out there, you know? <laughs> and, and that reminded me, and like, cause this thing, I know people were struggling with fear. I mean, we know everybody's battling fear, stress, and anxiety. I mean, everybody. And, and I was like, this is my way to combat the traditional approach to these things. And I need to get it out there. And that kind of like helps, that'll help you fight through the, challenges of writing a book there's a great quote from um, george orwell where he says like i forget the exact quote but it's like he says writing a book is this exercise with the demons and it's like it's a really great quote i wish i got i gotta find it somewhere but <laughs> but it's like he talks about the hell of writing a book and it's uh it's good though <laughs> i can i can even try to find it while, while we're talking here yeah I'm, I'm looking it up right now it's maybe this is it one one would never write a book if one were not driven by some demon whom one can neither resist nor understand. Is that yes. It? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so awesome. You got to face that, face that demon. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's powerful. Well, and what you're saying too about this idea of what would like, what would my life be like if I died and didn't finish this book? I was actually touched by a piece of research you included that the one that said a 2008 study by the University of Bath in the UK found that the strongest force of influence over consumers was exposing them to a terrifying version of their future self. Right. But that's what I think you're talking about, that emotions aren't good or bad, but we can use them with awareness as fuel. And if sometimes for people who are stuck in this creative process, if it, if what helps get you unstuck is this idea of what if I effing die without getting this book done? Right. And then now all of a sudden that's an empowering emotion. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Buddhism even has this concept of meditating on death. So I think staying present to your mortality is a beautiful thing to get you into action and get you out of your own way in service of your mission. 
One specific question on the creative process, in your experience, in your opinion, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Okay, so with great sentence, there's, there's, um, I mean, there's a lot to it, but I think when you're writing, especially telling a story, you want to use evocative Im- Im- imagery, use powerful adjectives and verbs, shorten and like um, lengthen the, uh, change the lengths of sentences. So kind of ignore a lot of the rules we learned in high school, you know, so like, I would say like two word sentences. I can't remember off the top of my head, but you know, say two word sentences and then follow it by a run, like a run on sentence, you know? So vary the length of your sentences. That's really, really powerful. Use those literally devices, metaphors, alliteration. I mean, I think in one sentence, I remember when I talk about a thing, I say boom, just like boom. So I'm using that. Get people to feel. This is the big one. I think this is the essence now that I'm thinking about it is show, don't tell. Mm. Show, don't tell show what's happening. Like there's a recent thing I read about the Rwanda genocide where the guy was saying that like he talked about how, uh, no, it was about coming back after war. And they said um, that they came back so fresh that they had dirt and blood beneath their fingernails. Now you can come back and say that, you know, they came back from the war and they were really tired, but he showed it. Like now I can see that the dirt and blood, I can picture it in my mind, right? So you want to guide people on this journey and have them see the thing. Show meaningful, choose meaningful details, like find the details of the story. So an example in Charu's, Charu's story, I actually have this detail where I talk about, the, I think, the flowers on her blanket. You know, that's a detail to paint an image, to bring people into the thing. The storytelling part, like the emotional parts of a writing, to me, and I think a lot of people would agree, are more challenging than sort of rational parts. Yeah. The research parts, the rational parts were easier to write. I mean, it required research. The story parts were harder, like to um, to to do because of the editing and to tell it in a way that brings people along the journey. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of those things would help, but I think ultimately the essence of it would be show, don't tell. Yeah. And, uh, and that would guide people in, in good, good writing. No, it is, it is remarkable, isn't it? How both writing a book, reading a book, it feel in some way like a journey, like we're moving, we're moving towards something, right? It's, and life is that same. Okay. So last, last couple questions, um, I want to ask about, now I want to ask again, I want to go back to that discussion of marketing. And, you know, I don't know much, which is why I'm going to ask <laughs> some of what your thoughts were. And by the way, I'm reminded Canfield was the one that helped open my eyes to this, where he would say, look, don't write a book and then think you're just going to send it to a publisher or you're going to find an agent and then the world is going to be excited about it and learn it. He's like, instead, his advice, I remember, was be thinking about how you're going to tell people about this, create awareness, get interest the moment you start writing it so that there is this parallel process. Um, And he talked about if you wrote it and just left it to someone else to do something with, that's a bit like having a baby and leaving it on a doorstep somewhere. So what have you found? Because clearly I, I found your book and a lot of books. I, I, somebody told me there's 5,000 books a day published on Amazon and there are more than a million books with zero sales on Amazon. Yeah. I, I read some, I read a statistic that said not over like, I think 90, over 95% of authors sell less than 250 books. Yeah. It's amazing. So how knowing all of that and knowing that clearly you're doing something right where a guy I interviewed brought your book, it was on his reading list. (laughs) You know, I found it online. Many other people are finding it. How have you thought about and approached and acted on marketing? Yeah. So the challenge for me, too, was I was starting with no platform. Literally no platform. I didn't even have a website. Like at the time, (laughs) I had nothing. Right. I was like, all right, this is gonna be hard. (laughs) So um 
I gave myself about seven, six to nine months. And honestly, in hindsight, I would have given myself 12 to go from finishing the draft, finishing the full draft to actually launching it. And in that time, I got the endorsements. So you need social proof. I cannot stress the endorsements enough. I mean, like I said, do you think the Dalai Lama and Jack Canfield, Seth Godin, or Marshall Goldsmith endorsement? Game changer. I mean, when I share, people are like, oh my God. So, um, so getting those, those right endorsements made a big difference. How can people do that, by the way? Sorry to jump in there, but how, like, how can the average person who's working a job, like they're, and of course this is not true, but these are the kinds of things we tell ourselves. I'm a nobody. Nope. You know, they won't even respond to my email. Like all this, like, how can people actually achieve that? And just for the record, I was a quote unquote, nobody with no plan. I wasn't known. So it was when I got these endorsements, they were 90. I mean, Jack, I had done a lot of work with. So, but other than him, like most of them were cold endorsements, right? Including Seth Godin. Uh, including Dalai Lama and, and Marshall Goldsmith happened to be three degrees away, but many of them were cold endorsements. Keith Razi was pure cold. A great strategy, like the gold mine strategy that worked for me was shooting personal videos for people. Hmm. Shooting personal videos and sharing that with them was a game changer because you can say the exact same thing in a video versus an email. It makes a world of a difference. And also then people appreciate that you've taken the time and effort and they almost feel compelled to like, I kind of have to at least just check it out. Yeah. No, that's smart. And a big thing also is you got to own your own story. A lot of people have a hard time sharing their demons. And this is something I've like personally seen. I even worked with somebody. I met somebody at a talk I did recently. They had invited me because I was so successful starting a brand from not starting this book from nothing at a podcasting conference to do a talk about how I did this. And I met a woman out there who was, who had, you know, had gone through a severe alcoholism, but she didn't share it because she is now a healer. She was outside of it. So she didn't want to talk about it. Like that was her past and she didn't want people to think bad of her. And I told her about owning her story. That was my key mindset piece on the stage. And like it changed her because if you own your demons, then people relate. Nobody just wants to hear how awesome you are. They want to, you know, people connect to our suffering, connect to our struggles. And yeah. but, but the first thing is you have to own your struggles. You have to own that suffering. So when you own your story, then you can share it. And share vulnerably, share authentically, like share authentically about everything you've been through. And if you do that, you'll connect with people. And that was a big one for me is that, I mean, I shared everything. And you, you hear how openly I've shared now because I've, I own, I mean, and for a long time, I couldn't share a lot of the stuff. I couldn't talk about the war. I couldn't talk about my guilt. I couldn't talk about any of this stuff. Yeah, so, and, um, yeah. and you, you even told me about your Batman pajamas. Exactly. I even shared about Batman yeah. onesies. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so I own all of it. I'm a ridiculous paradox. So, no. so but no. you own all of it. Like, and, and people will, will, but yeah, share, shooting personal videos is a great way to get those endorsements. That's, that's ultimately my long answer. That no, way. that's, that's awesome. And the thing I love about that is it is something that anyone, pretty much anyone can do. It's not, it's not just, oh, well, Akshay, you know, he's exceptionally gifted or he was fortunate to go to the right school or, or something like that. Right? Anybody can do and share and share your story. And the thing is, you don't need some fancy camera. My mind was like literally this garbage uh, camera. So tell me also, like, how have you thought about and how have you approached actually either building a community or fostering, you know, a like minded group of people around the idea that you're advancing? I started building those relationships far earlier. You know, I was building relationships with podcast hosts, building relationships with writers. That's how I was able to get featured on Inc., Forbes, Entrepreneur.com, all of the major outlets and do massive podcasts, uh, you know. So I built relationships earlier on and engaging these people, just saying, hello. sometimes it's like my, literally a lot of my relationships just started by writing 
me and saying, thank you for what you're doing. I really love this article. You know, literally as something as simple as that, acknowledging somebody, right? And then saying, you know, I'd love to connect with you. Like, I love what you're doing and we'd love to connect and sharing my story openly. And then often doing that with them have say, hey, we'd love to write about you, you know, or cold pitching, making the ask. This is another big thing is I always make an ask for an introduction. That has led me to bigger and bigger things. And of course, now I'm at a point where my community is pretty legit that I'm supporting others. I'm making introductions for others, you know? Yeah. So um, you got to start building and anybody can start doing this today, right? Find it, find an author of an article and write them an email saying, thank you. It's as simple as that to start building a relationship, you know? So over time by building that relationships, I, I mean, my primary marketing vehicle for the book was, was podcast. I love it. You know, hence, I mean, you can see, uh, I like, I like being on podcasts. I like, like talking, running my mouth uh, and going on rants, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's passion. It's passion. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's passion. So, um, I started building relationships and now I'm getting on bigger and bigger and bigger ones, you know? So um, building those relationships has allowed me to really start nurturing and getting Fear Vaughn out there. Like you said, now it's, it's pretty well known. I got a Wikipedia page even now. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought the one you did on Hal Elrod was really good too, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, the, and the cool thing is, here's another thing. When you do an interview, when you build these, like thank the person after that. What I do is I often just send a small, like a gift, like just a small gift card to just say thank you. And it's not to be fake. It's like, it's hard building a tribe. Acknowledge them for that. I can't tell you how many hosts have sent a small gift card to, and they're like, wow, thank you so much. I've never gotten this before. And I'm like, that's horrifying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I've never gotten like a thank you before from uh, yeah. somebody. And by doing that now, like I'm friends with Hal. I'm meeting him when I go to Austin. I'm friends with guys like Jordan. I'm friends with them. I'm making introductions to them, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, so it's a cool thing. You build friendships if you really come from that place of true service. And then the friendships all help each other. We're actually, like some of the guys I'm with now, we're sharing each other, making introductions to each other to do podcasts. I was just recently on Michael Gervais' Finding Mastery podcast, which is an awesome one. And again, I mean, this is the kind of thing that people might find, well, I'm not in that position today, but to have the awareness because you you probably are farther down the path than a lot of people listening to this and to know, well, here's how Akshay navigated that terrain. Here's things you can do, you know, as you go. A lot of this you can do today, which is awesome. And I started from nothing too. So you've got to play the long game too. That's another thing. We all, again, we're all very impatient, right? And I get it. I want it. I want to be on Joe Rogan tomorrow, but I wanted to be on Joe Rogan the first day I launched my book. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to play the long game. It's a tip. You get to the, if, if you keep working it, you're going to get no's. That's just part of the game. But if you keep working, keep set, keep doing the, doing the work, you'll make mistakes, but it'll get to a point. And like now I'm at this kind of tipping point, you know? So yeah. Uh, you, which you like, again, fundamentally, the all skill is you got to be pers per, uh, persistent and persevere and persevere. What's one thing when it comes to writing or the creative process that you've done that you will be sure not to do again, something you tried, it didn't work. And you're like, I'm going to, I don't do that anymore. Or I won't do that going forward. Uh, a few, yeah. I think the big one also is like, not like, not, it's not editing while writing. Like that was a huge mistake that took me very, very long. Instead, just write and flow. And then commit, like go into a cave. Don't try to do hundred things at once. Like if, if, when I write my next book, I would just shut off from the world, not try to do anything else for maybe six months. And okay, if you got family and stuff, I know that's maybe hard, but find a way to get into a metaphorical writing cave and commit to that. And, uh, and don't edit while writing. That would be a big one that I would do the next time. Yeah, like not awesome. do. <laughs> Thank you for that. And then similar kind of question when it comes to marketing, what's one thing that either you heard you know, other people say, well, you got to do this as a, as a marketer or promoter or, you know, something that you saw 
that you, you know, somebody else do that you tried for yourself and you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that after all. Is there something like that in, in when it comes to marketing and communications that you actually will not do going forward? Yeah. I think the, the, uh, I can't, I don't know if I heard this or maybe some people say is they, is the idea that if you're like a, like it kind of feeds into this mentality of the nobody thing, right? Look, even if you're starting from scratch, take a risk by asking the Dalai Lama, you know, take a risk by pitching a big show. What's the worst that could happen? So this idea that if you're an unknown, you can't like leap, you know, and I know I said play the long game. Yes, but take some risks about it and make the ask. So uh, I don't know if somebody said like, so the thing I would continue to do and like is not try to uh, uh, hold myself back because that who am I kind of syndrome, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, yeah, that's, that's, I think would be the big one is I'm still going to be reaching out to the, to the Joe Rogans and all that of the world. And, you know, if I get a no, what's the end of the world? I'll do it again in a few months. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and the good news is once you finally get on, he's going to ask you back like three or four times. <laughs> right, exactly. And for the record too, it took me about a year to get on Michael Gervais' podcast. About a year of reaching out to him, a year. <laughs> so, wow. you know, you're going you're, you're gonna to keep, you have to be, be, be persistent, but it's worth it because one, he's just an amazing human being and I'm grateful to have connected with him, but it's also a great show. <laughs> it's, yeah. and, it's a, and, you know, so it's, a, uh, so yeah, you got you to gotta play, play that long game as well and, and be persistent. And, you know, if you get a no, it's not a no, it's a not now. Uh, uh, you know, and, and yeah, there's, there'll be another time and you can keep going at it and eventually it'll happen. I love that. Okay. And then the final thing is just what final words of wisdom, advice, instruction, encouragement, however you might think of it, what thoughts will you leave our listeners with as it relates to, you know, getting their book or their product or their talk, their Ted talk, whatever it is, whatever creative endeavor they're in, what's your final thoughts and encouragement to them? I think with a creative endeavor, maybe touching on some of the things we said, or some of the things I said earlier, but I'm trying to think like, because to me, it's not just the, the, the doing of the creative thing. It's like the, the, the it's, everything is mindset. So I think that you're going to go through the fear and self-doubt. And, and that's okay. Like a lot, again, don't expect to be confident. You know, I have this kind of the five C's to confident that I like to say, maybe this will help. Like the, the five C's to how confidence is developed. There's clarity. So clarity, what's the outcome? Okay, I want to write a book. Then there's commitment. So you got to make the commitment. Like and be, when you commit, commit yourself entirely. And then there's courage. So you have to take courage because you're going to have self-doubt. You're going to have fear. And then after courage, there's capabilities. So once you take courage and take action, then you'll develop capabilities. And then you will reach confidence. So I think, yeah, I think this could be a really good way to, to summarize that is because a lot of the world will tell you to be confident as you're going to go do a talk. Or, I mean, I've heard people say, calm your nerves. And I think that's horrible advice. Or be confident when you're writing. And I'm saying, don't be confident. You know, just be committed and, ex- yeah. and take courage anyway. And you will develop capabilities. I wasn't good at all these things that I am now. You know, I developed it. Uh, so that those, I think those five C's to confidence will hopefully be helpful in a creative endeavor as well as in life, right? Yeah. No. But that's the big mistake with you, this is the idea that we should just be confident. No, man, you're not going to be confident about something you've never done. How could you be? I, lo- I love that. And the way that you boil that down of don't be confident, just be committed. It's like, that's awesome. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, that's great. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, well, Akshay, I have uh, I've enjoyed this so much, and I've taken away so much from our conversation, from your book, from things, videos of yours I've watched, and the time we had together. We'll always have, we'll always have Long Beach <laughs> and Phoenix. So, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show, man. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation as well.
Yeah. Next time you're in Salt Lake City, please let me know. You're always welcome as a guest in my home. And I know it's just a matter of time until you're here because Utah really is the center of the universe. <laughs> oh, I love Salt Lake. I absolutely love it. My my the, my trainer is out there. I have good friends out there. I was potentially planning a trip this summer, so I will keep you posted. Awesome, man. Well, I look forward to the next time we connect whenever it is. In the meantime, enjoy India. And thanks for staying up late to do this show with us. My pleasure, brother. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 